Merry Christmas. We are in our uh, second session of our Christmas series that we've entitled Generous, uh, Meeting the God Who Gives. And we want to talk about something pretty significant this morning. There's in communication studies, you'll find a couple easy ways to get your audience's attention when you begin. And one is to lead off saying something counterintuitive, right? Something that seems to go against the prevailing wisdom that kind of catches your audience's attention, if for no other reason than they disagree with what you just said. And so an example of that kind of statement for many of you might be if I were to say that we all know that the University of Texas is the greatest university in America. See, now I have your attention. Now, another way is to say something that's incredibly obvious that everyone knows and to somehow kind of draw something out of the background that we all just kind of glanced over because it was so obvious. An example of that might be to say that the University of Houston is by far the best football team in the state of Texas. Look at the rankings, Aggie fans. Sorry. Peach Bowl, baby. Now... I get to gloat once in a lifetime, and I'm going to do it. So, what we want to talk about today falls in the camp of the incredibly obvious. And so I want to give you something obvious about Christmas that all of you have figured out. Christmas is expensive. Um, Give you just some statistics that are mind-blowing. CBS News Uh, reported that Americans on Black Friday and Cyber Monday alone, so in a span of about three days, spend $80 billion shopping for Christmas gifts. Now that's nuts. Every shopper in America is estimated to spend somewhere around $1,000. It's not $1,000 per household, but per person who shops. And so each household now, as your kids get older, uh, have multiple shoppers. Some of them shop with your money, but they count as individual shoppers. You guys know how that works. And, and so I kind of reflected on my experience buying gifts at Christmas time. It, it used to be uh, that the list of people I bought presents for was quite small. And it, it essentially, as, a, as a, a teenager who works and makes some money and, and is kind of expected to buy gifts, you have your parents on the list. Uh, And generally, the gift you get them, they paid for. Um, And you might buy gifts for your siblings. And and then, uh, if you have a significant other and you're dating, uh, you buy them a gift. I tended to try to find a way to be single around Christmas time, just for the savings. Uh, Then I met my wife and realized I never want to be alone again. But, uh, over time, the the kind of the list gets bigger. You get married. You have a gift you've got to give them. Uh, Your uh, siblings get married and they start having kids. And you get them gifts. And then you have children. And then your nieces and nephews' gifts get cheaper because now you're spending the money on your own kids. All this stuff explodes to the point that in our home, we have five children. I've got 11 nieces and nephews with more on the way. And we're excited about all that. Uh, But Christmas is expensive because we want to give them all good gifts. And then there's this reality, uh, that I, like most husbands, have responsibility over selecting and purchasing a gift every Christmas. Let's be honest, our wives handle everything else. All the kids, the nieces and nephews, I mean, we might give opinions, but in the end, they're the ones leading the charge there. And they take care of the gifts for all the kids, for the nieces, the nephews, your parents, everything. 
And I have one responsibility each year, which is to get her a gift. And I'm not exceptionally good at gift giving. It's not because I don't want to be. It's actually the opposite. I think I try too hard. So Alicia will give me quite obvious, subtle hints, like circling things or telling me, this would be a great Christmas gift. And, and I just get this sense that you can't give the thing that they ask for. You, you've got to be able to surprise somebody. And I think at this stage in our marriage, if I gave Alicia the thing that she asked for, that would surprise her. So maybe... Maybe we'll go back to that. Um, I actually had a really good plan of a Christmas present to get her, and then life necessitated we purchase it earlier, so, so I'm, I'm done. Um, here's what I have done in the past, and I might recommend in moments like this. Whatever it was agreed upon that you would spend, buy something significantly more expensive. You're going to get the money back because she's going to return it, and that's Okay. When she returns it, she will see how much you spent on her and you will get a deposit in your bank account when the item is returned and you'll get a deposit in her love account when she sees that you spent too much. This is a really good strategy, guys. If your wife's in the room, we gave it away. Um, I should have warned you to cover her ears. Um, You know, from the beginning, Christmas gifts have been somewhat expensive. In fact, the first Christmas gifts given by the wise men to Jesus were not cheap gifts. They were quite expensive. You have heard them before. It's gold and frankincense and myrrh. I want us to look at the story of the wise men in Matthew chapter 2 for for a moment. Matthew chapter 2, verse 8, we pick up on the story of the wise men. They had gone following a star looking for this king who would be born, king of the Jews. They found their way through Jerusalem where King Herod met with them. Now, King Herod didn't care much for a new king coming. In fact, that bothered him a great bit, as we'll see later. And he sent them away looking for the child. And this is what happens in verse 8. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Then when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the story leads out with, with... These wise men moving through Jerusalem in search of this king. Now, Jerusalem is a reasonable place to start if you're looking for the king of the Jews. But Jesus was not to be found there. He was to be found in Bethlehem. Now, I want to take a moment just to get the historical picture of this event accurate. Because our nativity scenes, while beautiful, don't help us in understanding what actually took place. Because our nativity scenes have all the characters we talked about last week. Mary, Joseph, the baby, the shepherds the obligatory animals that you would find in a stable, and they have the angels. All of the things that, that we should expect to see on the night that Jesus was born, but they also include the wise men, and we should not expect to see them on the night that Jesus was born. I'm okay with them being in the scene just because it gets everybody in one place, but if we look at it historically, Jesus is not in the stable lying in a manger when the wise men appear. When they show up, they find the child, his mother and his father, living in a home. So we're not at the stable. They have made some kind of at least uh, somewhat permanent tenant residence where they're living and they have baby Jesus 
with them. Not a significant issue, just something to know about the order of events. And so they show up and they bring with them three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, gold continues to be an exceptional Christmas gift. The others have fallen off the list, but are valuable in the world that Jesus lived in. So gold is the gift that you would give a king. Frankincense is one of the most expensive incenses that was used in a number of things, particularly of note in religious practice in the temple. And myrrh, which was a perfume that was also used in embalming. Now these things had particular ceremonial uses, but also normal everyday uses for those who were wealthy. In history, we find that these gifts were not uncommon to bring at the birth of a king. And so embedded into the gifts that they give, we see these non-believing, non-Jewish people coming and responding to this king, born in a unique place where you wouldn't have expected a king to be born, and celebrating his rule and reign and worshiping him. And they bring these gifts, and I wanted just to, if we could, figure out the cost of these gifts. And so I attempted to value gold for you. Here's what I found. It's very expensive, and it depends what day of the week you ask, because the commodities market is volatile, and I think always has been. Around $1,000 an ounce, if you wanted a conservative guess. We'll see what it looks like on Monday. Now, frankincense, today's value would be about $500 a pound, and myrrh would be about 4000 Now, both of these things are made uh, by extracting... The, the sap or resin from a tree and cooking it down. And they were very, very popular in the Roman world, so they were very, very expensive commodity and difficult to find. And what you find out of the gates is that Christmas shopping has been expensive for years and years and years. And it's a recognition, when we look at these gifts, of the uniqueness of Jesus, the gold representing his royalty and wealth as a king. The frankincense recognizing his priestly role by giving him the incense that they would use in the temple. And the myrrh, a perfume used in embalming, signifying the importance of his death on the cross for our sins. So these are the gifts. Now these gifts are things that we would categorize as expensive. They they are high ticket items. Now there's a difference in what we want to talk about today. An expensive and costly. Because when we look at the Christmas story, we're going to find that that for the wise men, it was expensive. But for a number of other participants in the story, it was costly. And for a moment, I want to draw a line between the two because they're similar words, but they mean different things. Something that is expensive is simply an indicator that the number on the price tag is quite large. So there are tons of expensive items. And now, surely, based upon our income and and disposable wealth, our definitions of expensive may change. When I was a a youth pastor early on in life, the idea of buying anything ever at Pottery Barn sounded crazy. And now we have a few things because it doesn't seem quite as crazy later on in life. So it's a shifting line for some of us. But there's always been a line between expensive and costly. Expensive is something that has a high price tag. Costly is different. Something that is costly is something that involves sacrifice and loss to secure. And Christmas was expensive for the wise men. It's expensive for us. But for a few people in the Christmas story, the story is not expensive. It's incredibly costly. And what I'd like to do today is introduce to you a few people for whom Christmas was incredibly costly. The first is in many ways one of the stars of the story 
Her name is Mary. Now, Mary's an important figure in the story of Christmas. She's an important woman in the story of human history and the Christian faith. And oftentimes, in in evangelical churches, we don't talk about Mary a lot, truthfully, because our Catholic friends give her too high of a position. They may view Mary as if she and somehow shared with Jesus in the role of saving sinners. When the scriptures are clear, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But just because Mary isn't that doesn't mean Mary wasn't an exceptional lady. When thinking about Mary and all that we'll see about her, it's my hope that my daughters will grow up to be young women just like her. And so I want you to meet Mary, to think about her story, and as we walk through this, to understand the cost of Christmas for Mary. We'll begin in Luke chapter 1, where we meet her. Mary enters the story in verse 26. The scriptures say, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So we're introduced to Mary, an unmarried teenage girl living in a small town in Galilee. Galilee was a predominantly poor area there south of Jerusalem, excuse me, north of Jerusalem. The people didn't have much, and it's a small town. And Mary has found out that while she's yet to be married, she is going to be pregnant. Now immediately, this story is a dramatic interruption in Mary's life. Mary and Joseph have planned to get married and they're engaged. I'm sure they have all sorts of plans for the future. Hopes and dreams that Joseph's carpentry business might prosper, that they might have a decent home and and raise children that would love the Lord and, and take them to the synagogue on Saturdays and spend days with one another, resting, enjoying God's blessing, working hard and raising children there with their families and friends in a small community and God interrupted that when he sends an angel to Mary letting her know that she's going to be pregnant with the very son of God who will reign and rule now I'm sure Mary's got mixed emotions in this there's excitement and joy because God has said the moment of redemption of God's rescue for his people has come and I'm sure there's moments where she felt unworthy because the very son of God would be given to her to be raised by her and moments of complete and total fear when the community found out that she was pregnant. 
fear that Joseph might leave her, that, that she might be stoned for adultery, fears that the entire community forever would know her. Now, I grew up in a small town. The population of the city I went to high school in, if you can call it a city, is 400. Most of the people in the community lived outside of town. My senior class had 28 students in it at the public school. This wasn't the private school. This was everyone in the city. And a couple of things that, that I learned about small towns is, is one, um, nothing is ever a secret. And two, no one ever forgets anything. If I were to go back today and see guys that I went to high school with, if we just spent time with one another, stories of silly things that we had done in sixth grade would start off. Because no one ever forgets. So Mary is facing this reality that that the whole city, the whole town, forever will know her as Mary, the girl who was pregnant before she was married. So Mary does what for centuries unwed teenage mothers have done. She went to stay with an out-of-town relative to avoid the gawking eyes of nosy neighbors and the whispers behind her back. The story picks up in verse 39 as Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So when Mary shows up at Elizabeth's home, Elizabeth's baby leaps for joy. This child is John the Baptist who will be a great prophet who will prepare the way for the coming of Christ. And he rejoices at the presence of the Savior. And and Elizabeth, having been confirmed, the same word that was spoken prophetically to Mary rejoices with her. And I love when we see Mary's response to Elizabeth's words in chapter 1, verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm and scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Right away, we see some amazing things about Mary. Mary has a love for the Lord. She knows His character, His word, and His promises. And she delights in the good thing that God is doing, even though it's difficult, even though she may be fearful. She celebrates God's goodness. But we're not done with Mary. Mary's story continues in Luke chapter 2. After the child is born, they go to take him to the temple for the necessary rites and rituals that a boy born in a Jewish family would endure. And as they take him there to the temple, something unique happens in verse 25. It says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. 
And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And when he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I want you to understand the prophet's words to Mary against the backdrop of all that she has gone through is that raising and being mother to the Son of God will be difficult. That being Jesus' mother will rip her heart to shreds. That for her, the Christmas story is costly in more ways than we can imagine. And from the earliest days of his infancy, at eight days old, the prophet says, this is going to be hard, Mary. This is going to cost something. This is going to hurt. And I love Mary's response to all that God has asked her. That all that he's given her to do in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, when she sings... When she responds to the angel. She said, I rejoice. I rejoice. For God has looked on my humble estate. Mary's response to God. Is to affirm that she is his servant. And that she delights to serve him. Now, Mary's not the only woman that the Christmas story was exceedingly costly for. When we continue the story of King Herod, we find that there were a number of mothers who endured great costs in Matthew chapter 2. In verse 16, Herod gets the reality that the wise men won't return. And this is what happens. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, a weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Sometimes we just read past that part of the Christmas story. A few things we know about Herod the Great was that he was a paranoid and violent man. He had killed his own sons for fear that they might try to usurp the throne from him while he was alive. And when he heard of this king being born, he couldn't allow him to live. And so he wanted to just strategically focus on him and and to have the wise men report back so that he could go and rather than worship the child, murder him. Well, the wise men were told by the angel not to return to Herod. They went home a different way, and Herod took more drastic action. And and, and for good measure, he he sends the army in 
to slaughter all male children under the age of two. If you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, there's a stunning similarity to Pharaoh and his effort to kill and destroy Moses the Redeemer. One of the things you're going to find as you unfold the pages of Scripture and as you walk with God is that Christmas is an all-out declaration, a war against all powers of evil, God's Redeemer and Savior, the King of Righteousness coming into the world, and that when that happens, evil responds with violence. And the cost of that violence was, uh, was incurred by the mothers of Bethlehem as their sons were murdered. As evil men went to slaughter helpless children. Ripping them from their mother's arms and killing them. For Mary, for all the mothers of Bethlehem, Christmas was costly. But they weren't alone either. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I think, tells us the greatest cost of the Christmas story. The one who incurred more loss than we could imagine. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, the Scriptures say, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. The whole story of, of Christmas, the incarnation, God taking on human form, is a transaction in which Jesus set aside the riches and joy and glories of heaven to be born in human likeness with all of our frailty and weakness. And not just to be born into a relatively comfortable family. But to be born into a family of the poor. When you read the story of Mary and Joseph taking their son to the temple to, to make purification and for his circumcision, there's an offering there to give. And they give small, inexpensive birds. Now, when you read the law of Moses, you'll find that, that that's never the prescribed offering for anything. It's the permissible offering for the poor. The poor were allowed to make offerings of doves because they couldn't afford lambs and rams and bulls. And God made it an exception for the poor that they might be able to participate in the life of the temple. What we know about Mary and Joseph is they were members of the working poor, that he was a day laborer and they lived hand to mouth Jesus' whole life. Jesus grew up in a city full of dirt poor peasants. A few things we know about the world of Nazareth and that community is that in Jesus' day, a number of children that Jesus would have run and played with, He would have seen die because the mortality rate for children was more than 50%. More than half of the children that were born around the time of Jesus didn't make it to their teenage years and Jesus would have been friends and played and run with them as a part of the working poor in a small, poor village suffering the hardships of life that most of us can't imagine. And while you and I would struggle to enter into that kind of poverty, willfully, Jesus left far more than we could imagine to enter it. And beyond that, Jesus endured hardship, mistreatment, and eventually ferociously murdered for our sin. The cost of Christmas for Jesus, for the mothers of Bethlehem, and for Mary is great. You see, for us, it's expensive. For them, it was costly. 
But there's a moment in history where the cost for Mary and her heart being pierced and the cost for Jesus as he dies for our sins and the cost, the cost for the mothers of Bethlehem comes to one climax. And hope springs out of it. There's a poem I've shared with some of y'all in the past by John Piper called The Innkeeper. In this poem, Piper imagines what it would have been like had Jesus as a man, just weeks before his crucifixion, found his way back into Bethlehem to meet the innkeeper, the man who kept his family. And I want to share that with you this morning. It begins like this. Jake's wife would have been 58 the day that Jesus passed the gate of Bethlehem and slowly walked toward Jacob's end. The people talked with friends and children played along the paths and Jesus hummed a song and smiled at every child he saw. He paused with one small lass to draw a camel in the dirt then said, what's this? The girl bent down her head to study what the Lord had made. She smiled, a camel, sir, and laid her finger on the bulging back where merchants bind their leather pack. It's got a hump, indeed it does. And who do you believe it was who made the camel with this hump? Without a thought that this would stump the rabbi guild and be reviled, she said, God did. And Jesus smiled. Good eyes, my child. And what Would that all Jerusalem within that wall of yonder stone could see the signs of peace. He left the lass with lines of simple wonder on her face and slowly went to find the place where he was born. Folks said that the inn had never been a place for sin, for Jacob was a holy man and he and Rachel had a plan. To marry, have a child or two, and serve the folks who traveled through, especially the poor who brought their meal and turtle doves and sought a place near Zion's gate. They'd rise up early and stay up late to help the pilgrims come and go. And when the place was full to some, especially the poorest, they would say, we're sorry there's no room, but stay. Now, if you like, out back, there's lots of hay and we have extra cots that you can use. There'll be no charge. The stable isn't very large. But Noah keeps it safe. He was a wedding gift to Jake because the shepherds knew he loved the dog. There's nothing in the Decalogue, he used to joke, that says a man can't love a dog. The children ran ahead of Jesus as he strode toward Jacob's end. The stony road that led to the end was deep, with centuries of wear and steep. At one point, just before the door, the Lord knocked once, then twice before. He heard an old man's voice, round back, it called. So Jesus took the track that led around to the end. The old man leaned back in his chair and told the dog, never mind, ain't no, had no intent the door My lad, for 30 years, I'm sorry for the inconvenience to your sore feet. The road to Jerusalem is hard, ain't it? Don't mind old Shem. He's harmless like his dad. Won't bite a Roman soldier in the night. Sit down. Jacob waved the stump of his right arm. We're in a slump right now. Got lots of time to think and talk. Come have a drink. From Jacob's well, he laughed. You own the inn, the Lord inquired? On loan, you'd better say. God owns the inn. At that, the Lord knew that they were kin and ventured on. Do you recall the tax when Caesar said to all the world that each must be enrolled? Old Jacob winced. Or north winds cold? 
Are deserts dry? Do fishes swim and ravens fly? I do. A grim and awful year it was for me when God ordained that strange decree. How could I such a time forget? Why do you ask? I have a debt to pay and I must know how much. Why do you say that it was such a grim and awful year? He raised the stump of his right arm. So dazed, young man, I didn't know I'd lost my arm. Do you know what it costs for me to house the Son of God? The old man took his cedar rod and swept it around the place, emptying for 30 years alone, you see. Old Jacob, poor Jacob, runs it with one arm, a dog, and no sons. But I had sons once. Joseph was my firstborn. He was small because his mother was so sick. And when he turned three, the Lord was good to me and Rachel. And our baby Ben was born the very fortnight when the blessed family arrived. And Rachel's gracious heart contrived a way for them to stay there in that very stall. The man was thin and tired. You look a lot like him. But Jesus said, why was it grim? We got a reputation here that night. Nothing at all to fear in that we thought. It was of God. But in one year, the slaughter squad from Herod came. And where do you suppose they started? Not a clue. We didn't have a clue what they had come to do. No time to pray, to run. No time to get poor Joseph off the street. Let him say goodbye to Ben or me or Rachel. Only time to see a lifted spear smash through his spine and chest. He stumbled to the sign that welcomed strangers to the place and looked with panic at my face as if to ask what he'd done. Young man, you ever lost a son? Tears streamed down the Savior's cheek. He shook his head, but he couldn't speak. Before I found the breath to scream, I heard the words, a horrid dream. Kill every child who's two or less. Spare for aught, nor make excess. Let this one be the oldest here. And if you count your own life dear, let none escape. I had no sword, no weapons in my house, but Lord, I had my hands. And I would save the son of my right hand. So brave. Rachel was so brave. Her hands were like a thousand iron bands around the boy. She wouldn't let him go. And so her own back met every thrust and blow. I lost my arm, my wife, my sons. The cost for housing the Messiah here. And why would he simply disappear and never come to help? They sat in silence. Jacob wondered at the stranger's tears. I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life, and God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why one should live and another die, for God's ways are high, and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared the night you made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks they will crucify my flesh, but mark this, Jacob, I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot on the head who holds the power of death. And I will rise with life and breath, your wife and Ben and Joseph too, and give them, Jacob, back to you. With everything the world can store, and you will reign with them forevermore. This story 
imaginary as it may be, draws us to the moment that Mary's heart breaks as she sees her son crucified. That the cost of Jesus coming in Christmas is at its highest. And the hope for those who have lost, like this poor innkeeper and all of the parents of Bethlehem, draw together in one story. That the death of Jesus was not some side note in the story of history. But the moment that God moved, taking upon Himself the punishment for our sin, rising again, giving us hope, the moment that God's promise to restore what the enemy has stolen becomes a reality. You see, redemption is costly. It always has been. And and those who God has called to be agents of His redemption, to be participants in the story, will endure a cost. But the story also proves to us the reality that God restores everything the enemy destroys. And God returns everything the enemy steals. And, And I know that some of you in this Christmas season are approaching it having lost having endured things you didn't expect to endure, wondering what the future will look like, wondering how you move forward at this moment. And the promise of Christmas is that, yes, there is cost, and the enemy wages war against the people of God, but there is hope because Jesus died and arose again and will return. And when He does, all of the costs will be worth it, and everything that was taken will be restored. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You that You are a God of infinite grace and mercy and that in sending Your Son, You have declared an all-out war on every bit of evil in this world. And while the enemy fights and wreaks havoc and destroys, we have hope through Your Son, Jesus. We have the promise of restoration. Lord, I thank You that You are a God who restores. Father, I pray that for those who have lost joy because of what they've gone through and those who have lost hope that even now you would begin to restore their joy in what you will do and their hope for the day that your son returns and establishes his kingdom in its fullness for the day that we reign with him father i pray that that hope and joy would permeate our celebrations this season in jesus name amen